homicides and carjackings and home invasions. But, uh, you know, most of them, I think, really view this through a political lens, unfortunately. And we're seeing this from some of the uh, folks who've been invited to the White House today, including the mayor of San Jose, California, Sam Licardo, who uh, recently made headlines for the first in the nation gun control proposal that the San Jose City Council has endorsed. Sam Licardo, the mayor of San Jose, wants to charge a fee for you to own a gun. That's right. If you are a gun owner in San Jose, California, you're supposed to pay money for the privilege of exercising your Second Amendment rights. And we don't know how much that fee will be. The city council hasn't come up with it yet. Uh, but the mayor also wants to mandate that every legal gun owner in San Jose carry liability insurance. Now, I'm not even sure that this policy exists for gun owners. But again, it'll be a mandatory requirement, perhaps as recent as soon as uh, September in San Jose, California. The city council has unanimously approved this, but now they're just trying to go through all the details. And this is the type of guy that Joe Biden invites to the White House to talk about ways to address violent crime by targeting legal gun owners. Yeah, so we're gonna be talking about that on the program. Also, uh, huge developments in Cuba over the weekend where uh, you had protests, thousands of Cubans taking to the streets uh, to push for freedom. They are upset not only about uh, how the communist nation is handling the uh, the COVID pandemic down there, but they are upset with food shortage. Look, they're upset with communism. They're tired of living under a communist regime. And now you don't you don't have uh, the Castro brothers in charge, right? It's It's sort of a a new day. Uh, in Cuba, at least it has been over the past couple of years. Miguel Diaz-Canal is the uh, new Cuban leader, or at least the uh, recent, most recent Cuban leader. Uh, of course, he is uh, responding to these protests, these pro-democracy protests, as commies do, calling them a form of systemic provocation by dissidents doing the bidding of the United States. Yes, it's all D.C.'s fault. I mean, you could tell it's, it's, it's Washington. Where do they get those American flags that these protesters were waving if they weren't, you know, airdropped in by the CIA or something like that? Uh, Grandma, the uh, Cuban Communist Party newspaper, actually acknowledged the protests over the weekend, which is kind of rare. You know, if, if, the, if the communist regime can ignore even discussing uh, uh, protests against their rule, they will generally do so. But they did acknowledge these protests, calling the uh, people who took to the streets. Well, they said that uh, some of them included government supporters who, quote, may have been confused by disinformation on social media. In other words, uh, there were actually commies out there who thought that they were going to a pro-government rally. And then they came out and they just kind of got swept up in all of the uh, anti-regime protests out there. I, I, I don't think that that is the case. But keep an eye on what is going on there. There have already been reports of Cuban police dressed in civilian clothes uh, attacking these pro-democracy protesters. Uh, there was video over the weekend of one woman whose nose was broken. Uh, there have been reports of the Internet going offline in protest areas. And, of course, uh, the big concern is that the Cuban regime would try to violently put down what to this point has been a a nonviolent protest against the communist regime. 
So we'll be talking about that on the program as well, because this is a, you know, look, not only is this big for those individuals who are daring to speak out and, and the price for speaking out against the government in Cuba is a lot higher than the price for speaking out against, say, the Trump administration over the last four years or the Biden administration here in the United States today. But the left doesn't seem to realize that. Remember, we spent four years of hashtag resist and, you know, the handmaid's tale was coming and the theocracy's here. Um, no, it's not. The, the folks who protested the Trump administration, you know what happened to them? Nothing happened to them because we live in a free society. Meanwhile, in Cuba, if you speak out against the regime, simply walking down the street demanding your rights as a, as a Cuban citizen, under the Cuban Constitution, which, remember, is supposed to promise all these glorious things, right? Best healthcare system in the world. And Cuba's been exporting doctors overseas because those doctors could get paid in hard currency as opposed to the worthless pesos in Cuba. As a result, these Cubans can't get the healthcare that, uh, that they were promised under this amazing socialist utopia. And even speaking out, just walking down the street in protest, demanding your rights, can get you locked up in prison. Your family can be targeted. Your livelihood can be lost because you dare speak out against the communists in power. So we'll be talking about that uh, on the program today as well. And we are going to be paying a little bit of attention to... uh, election news here in the United States, you know, kind of piggybacking off of Joe Biden and his meeting with uh, anti-gun politicians today. It is pretty clear now that the establishment wing of the Democrat Party is running as far and as fast as they can away from the defund the police movement. A year ago, they embraced it. And I'm talking the establishment wing of the Democrat Party, right? I mean, you had all kinds of uh, elected officials proclaiming the need to reimagine policing and uh, we need to defund the police. The Minneapolis City Council voted to disband that city's police department. Here we are roughly a year later, maybe 13 months later. And Democrats, at least the, the, the smart politicians who call themselves Democrats, they know what's up. They know that the American people have not embraced the defund the police movement, which has led to, I think, not only uh, Democrats in New York, for example, selecting Eric Adams, former uh, New York police captain, uh, as their nominee in the New York City mayor's race. But out in Los Angeles, the sheriff of L.A. County, Alex Villanueva, who ran for office four years ago as a progressive Democrat, he, he ran on things like, not cooperating with ICE in enforcing immigration law. He, he wanted to make L.A. County basically a sanctuary county for uh, illegal migrants. And now his campaign consultant literally says we are running against the woke left. This is a Democrat. This is the incumbent Democrat sheriff in Los Angeles County, one of the most left-leaning counties and one of the most left-leaning states in the union. And he's publicly saying, we are running against the woke left. Because even in L.A., the, uh, the embrace of the woke left, 
is, is, is probably going to do more harm than good for these politicians. I mean, this is how bad it's gotten. Last month in L.A., the L.A. County Democratic Party met. More than 90% of the voting members in attendance demanded the resignation of Sheriff Alex Villanueva, the incumbent Democrat who they endorsed four years ago. The uh, chair of the L.A. County Democratic Party says there's a, a feeling, a sense of, did we get a lemon? <laughs> because now he's talking about the rise in violent crime. He is dismissing the defund the police movement. He is even saying that there needs to be more concealed carry licenses in Los Angeles County. Now, don't ask him how many. Because then he starts sounding a lot more like a progressive Democrat than a uh, Second Amendment supporter. But he's he's at least saying things. I don't think the action is quite there yet, but he's saying things that even a lot of conservatives can agree with. So we'll talk about uh, the Democrats running away from defund the police here on Tony Cast today. But when we come back, we are going to turn our attention to this meeting at the White House. Joe Biden upside down in the polls when it comes to violent crime. So what does he do <laughs> at a time of record setting gun sales and millions of Americans embracing their Second Amendment rights? And oh, yeah, by the way, the, the far left complaining about over policing. And over incarceration, you know, so conservatives aren't in the mood for more gun control. The far left isn't in the mood for more gun control. What does Joe Biden decide to do? Double down on his support for gun control. We'll talk more about it after this. Stick around. We are just getting started here on Tony Katz Today. It's Tony Katz Today. Cam Edwards in for Mr. Katz. And at the White House, oh, so many anti-gun politicians in one room. Uh, yes, Attorney General Mary Garland going to be uh, joining uh, President Joe Biden for this meeting with uh, Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, who uh, won the Democratic nomination for New York City Mayor. Uh, Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser is going to be there. San Jose, California Mayor Sam Licardo is going to be there. Then you got the uh, police chiefs from Chicago, uh, Memphis, Wilmington, Delaware, Newark, New Jersey, uh, also all in attendance. It's kind of amazing to me that they, they keep talking to these politicians were in cities and anti-gun police chiefs, by the way, in cities where violent crime is on the increase, as opposed to actually talking to politicians in places where violent crime is dropping. I mean, it seems to me like if you want to tackle violent crime, maybe you start talking to those politicians in places that didn't see a staggering surge in shootings or homicides beginning last year and continuing on into this year. Uh, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, for instance, saw its homicides drop last year. I don't see uh, Mayor David Holt of Oklahoma City on the uh, invite list to this meeting with uh, Biden today. But then again, uh, David Holt's a Republican, so maybe that's why he didn't get the invite. This is a, a Democrat confab at the White House trying to figure out a way to reduce violent crime, but really more importantly, to, uh, to, to boost the president's polling. When it comes to violent crime, got to make got to make it seem like President Biden is doing something, even if it's not something that works. And uh, and I have to say, Eric Adams, the Democratic mayoral candidate in New York City, he's got some awful ideas. I, I know that a lot of folks on the right were kind of excited. They saw Eric Adams as the um, not the, 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 the non crazy Democrat. 
in the race. Like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez despised Eric Adams, worked hard uh, so that he would not win the nomination, and he won the nomination. But but I don't want conservatives to think that Eric Adams is the second coming of Rudy Giuliani or uh, anything like that. He, he is certainly no fan uh, of the right to keep and bear arms, though there was a moment yesterday morning I uh, got up and I was looking online. I saw this uh, headline from Politico. Adams to meet with Biden Monday for gun violence discussion. Uh, the subhead, it's almost insulting what we've witnessed over the last few years. And so for a brief moment in time, I, I was kind of excited that maybe Eric Adams was going to come out and say something like, you know, the, the focus on preventing law-abiding Americans from exercising their Second Amendment right uh, is a horrible way to address a rise in violent crime. That's not, unfortunately, what Eric Adams said. Uh, according to a rep for uh, Eric Adams, he wants to talk with Joe Biden today about better coordination between New York City and the federal government to track the unlicensed firearms used in shootings across the city. Uh, Eric Adams uh, telling George Stephanopoulos on ABC yesterday, quote, we feed crime in America and in New York. We need to stop the feeders of crime, and then we must have an immediate response. We should create something like a joint terrorism task force. That's what we did to fight terrorism. Why are we ignoring the violence in the cities? You know why, George? He answered, they're black, brown, and poor. We ignore them. And we've basically have thrown up our hands and stated there's nothing we can do about it. They're wrong, and I'm going to show them. Well, first of all, Eric Adams is wrong. That's an absurd statement that we aren't doing anything to address violent crime in our nation's cities. In fact, I, we'll, we'll talk later this hour about a proven strategy that's been around for more than 20 years and has been used to reduce homicides in places like Boston, Massachusetts, Louisville, Kentucky, Greensboro, North Carolina, Cincinnati, Ohio. It doesn't require any new gun control laws. It doesn't require a joint terrorism task force. It doesn't require infringing on the rights of law-abiding Americans. This is nothing new. It's effective. It's proven. It's constitutional. And Eric Adams says he just ignores it. Following the interview with Stephanopoulos, an Adams advisor told Politico that the mayoral nominee in Biden spoke about illegal guns when the president called to congratulate him on his victory. Adams wants New York City to have easier access to databases that list stores selling illegal guns and individuals who traffic them into the five boroughs. First of all, I don't know if this is a problem with translation between what Adams said and what Politico reported, but the federal government doesn't have a database of stores that are illegally selling handguns. Because if the federal government is aware of a federally licensed firearm retailer that's illegally selling handguns, they shut it down and they charge the store owner with illegally selling handguns. Uh, Adams uh, apparently believes that there's also a database of individuals who illegally traffic firearms into New York City. And again, um, hey, you can have access to that information. Just go down to the uh, federal court system and start looking up those individuals who've been arrested and prosecuted because that again is a crime already we don't need any new laws here uh eric adams also on uh, cnn sunday really making the rounds here because the democrats view him as a non crazy democrat too as they're trying to move away from the defund the police movement they see eric adams as a guy who should be getting a lot of screen time uh, he told Jake Tapper that Democrats' priorities and gun laws at the federal level are misguided. 
saying that they're too much. Uh, there's been too much focus on banning "quote unquote" assault rifles, which I, I, I agree with. But then he turned around and said they should be focusing more on handguns, which I disagree with. He says these priorities, I believe, really were misplaced, and it's almost insulting what we've witnessed. Over the past few years, many of our residents, they saw these numbers. They knew that the inner cities, particularly where brown people and black people and poor people lived, they knew that they were dealing with this real crisis. He says the numbers of those killed by handguns are astronomical. And if we don't start having real federal legislation matched with states and cities, we're never going to get this crisis under control. Well, you can't gun ban your way out of this problem. You you, you can't gun control your way out of this problem. We live in a nation with 100 million legal gun owners, with 400 million privately owned firearms, and, by the way, the constitutionally protected right to keep and bear them. So any strategy that focuses on trying to reduce the supply of firearms available to criminals by cutting down on legal gun owners or on the ability to exercise our Second Amendment rights, not only violates our Constitution, but it is doomed to failure. So what can we do if it's not gun control? Well, I'll give you the answer. But you got to stick around, because that music means we got to take a break. Stick around, though. We do have much more of Tony Katz today, and it's coming up right after this quick timeout. It's Tony Katz today. Tony is not here but that's all right. My name is Cam Edwards. I'm the editor at BearingArms.com. Glad to be behind the microphone once again. And uh, the uh, phone numbers to call, 833-468-8669. That's 833-GOT-TONY. We've been talking about uh, President Biden once again trying to do something about his uh, terrible numbers when it comes to crime. Uh, and even gun control, by the way. The president's underwater in terms of his handling on the gun issue. Uh, and that is largely because I mean, Democrats like what he's doing, but it's largely because Republicans hate it. And the majority of independents don't like what Joe Biden is doing when it comes to gun control. But that is not stopping the White House because they have a, a bunch of gun control activists and anti-gun politicians who are once again gathering together uh, to talk about violent crime and how awful it is and how we must have more gun control laws on the books. Eric Adams, the uh, former NYPD officer, I believe he's a captain in the uh, New York Police Department. Now he's the uh, Brooklyn Borough President. He is also the Democrat candidate for mayor in New York City, making the rounds of the Sunday shows yesterday, talking up the need for the federal government to do more about handguns. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Politico uh, reports that, uh, that Adams did not call for a complete ban on handguns. I'm just, let me quote this from Politico. When asked what he would propose in terms of national gun reforms, Adams didn't endorse a complete ban on handguns, instead proposing a crackdown on gun dealers and, quote, lax gun laws in states across the country. Well, okay, so a couple of things. First of all, if Adams had been dumb enough to actually call for a complete ban on handguns, he would have been pilloried immediately because the Supreme Court has already said in Heller versus Washington, D.C., or Heller versus District of Columbia, you can't ban handguns. You can't do it. In fact, the Supreme Court said you cannot ban an entire class of firearms. So on the one hand, I guess I'm glad to see that Eric Adams didn't call for a ban on handguns, but it wouldn't have mattered if he had. But he said, quote, let's look at these particular gun dealers where there's a real correlation in connection with the guns that are used in our streets. Those who are 
those states with lax gun laws where you can walk into a gun shop with a license and walk out with the gun. Well, wait a second. Hang on. You walk into a gun store. Yeah, you have your license. And it'd be interesting to know what Eric Adams thinks about to show an ID to vote. Uh, You go through a federal background check. You come back clear. And then, yeah, you walk out with your gun. I don't consider that to be a quote unquote lax gun law. You, you've you've been pre-screened by the federal government. Adam says, let's look at all of the feeders of how guns are making their way into our cities. Okay, let's let's do that, Eric. Because the vast majority of guns in the hands of criminals today weren't acquired at a gun store. So saying we need to crack down on these uh, gun dealers. First of all, what Eric Adams is talking about, this is something that gun control advocates have been talking about for decades. You, you may hear the phrase rogue gun dealers. That's what uh, Biden used. We also hear bad apple gun dealers. And gun control advocates typically say, you know, we're not talking about every gun store in the country. There are about 5%, 3 to 5% of all gun stores are these bad apple dealers. Really what they're talking about are high volume stores. Stores that sell a lot of firearms are more likely to have those firearms ultimately traced back to them uh, by the ATF. But we're still talking about a very small fraction of all of the firearms sold by these stores. It's just that since they're dealing with such a large volume, yes, it is more likely that a gun that was originally lawfully sold at retail from their establishment may end up getting stolen from a car may end up getting stolen from a home uh, and eventually used in the commission of a violent crime, perhaps 10, 12, 15 years later. Is that the fault of the gun shop? Nope. Can you really learn anything simply by looking at, uh, you know, what gun stores have sold the most firearms that were eventually traced by the ATF? No, you can't. But if you're a gun control advocate, you want to try to blame these gun stores for violent crime you want to blame legal gun owners for violent crime you want to blame anybody and everything but the actual violent criminal themselves because they're a victim too right they're a victim of circumstance they're a victim of their environment they're a victim of their upbringing they're a victim of society they're a victim of systemic racism sure they carjacked somebody sure maybe they invaded somebody's home but you know they're not really a bad guy maybe just we're having a bad day if we really want to tackle violent crime we need to go after these rogue gun dealers we need to go after these states with lax gun laws no we really don't we really need to focus on those violent offenders and the most effective way to do that i believe is through a program called operation ceasefire which was developed back in the 19 late 1990s in boston Boston was seeing a surge in shootings at the time. A lot of these crimes were being committed by juveniles. The police commissioner in Boston at the time was looking around for, you know, various gun control proposals that would make a difference. And he started talking with a researcher, a guy named David Kennedy, who is now at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York. And Kennedy pointed out, you know, um, the vast majority of the people who are actually shooting people aren't, aren't getting their guns legally. They're not even old enough to get guns legally. So what, what good is another gun control law going to do? And to the commissioner's credit, he actually listened. And they came up with a strategy in Boston 
And uh, David Kennedy was a part of it, along with uh, other researchers from Harvard, but also the uh, Boston Police Department's gang unit and, and community activists. And the program that they came up with, it sounds simple. And in ways it is, because it doesn't involve any new laws. It really doesn't require any additional funding. It's just a change in, in tactics and strategy. But if implemented successfully, it really pays off. So you use the police to identify who are the most violent gangs in any given city. And generally, you can figure that out. You can look at the geography of a city. You can find out where the most shootings are happening. Okay, what gangs are in those areas? And then you drill down even further. Who are the most violent individuals associated with that gang? We tend to know this too, because these are individuals who have lengthy criminal histories. They are already in the criminal justice system. And so you call those folks in. You use their probation officers. You call them in for a meeting. Not one at a time, but a group. You get about 20, 25 of them. And when they show up, they are confronted. On the one side of the room, you've got law enforcement. You've got cops on the beat. You've got the police chief. You've got the local district attorney. You've got the U.S. attorney. And then on the other side of the room, you've got members of the community. You've got pastors. You've got violence interrupters. You've got teachers. You've got parents. And these two groups have the same message for these violent offenders. You're going to stop shooting people. And we'll help you if you'll let us. But we'll make you if you don't. So in other words, if you want to change your life around, we're going to give you the opportunity to do so. We're going to give you job training. We're going to help you get your GED. We're going to help you get into college if that's what you want to do. We're going to get you counseling. We're going to get you the help you need. But if you don't take advantage of that, then we're going to take your criminal cases and we're going to move into federal court. And you're not going to get a plea bargain like you've gotten in the past. You're not going to get a slap on the wrist like you've gotten in the past. Instead, look, you're a felon. You may be 19, 20 years old, but, but you're, you're already a convicted felon. If we catch you with a gun, we're going to charge you with being a felon in possession of a firearm in federal court. And that's a 10-year sentence. And you're going to have to do eight and a half years before you get out. If you actually commit a crime of violence with a firearm as a convicted felon in federal court, you're looking at 20, 30 years or more. Again, no plea bargains offered. This is the deal. You want help, we're going to give it to you. You don't want to take that help, we're going to put you away for as long as we possibly can. And when that is not an empty threat, and when the promises of help are not empty promises, amazing things can happen. In Boston, the juvenile homicide rate dropped by more than 50% after Operation Ceasefire was put in place. Greensboro, North Carolina, another huge success story. You had families whose kids were literally not able to play on the streets. The neighborhoods were transformed thanks to Operation Ceasefire. In Cincinnati, same thing. Homicides dropped by more than 40%. Now, it hasn't always worked. There have been some cities, Baltimore, they tried to implement it. It was a disaster. In part because then-Mayor Martin O'Malley didn't believe in the system. He wanted to try to arrest his way to safety. And so he ended up, you know, let, let's just arrest everybody. For every crime that we possibly can. Well, most of those people, even most people in Baltimore arrested for carrying a gun without a license, they're not violent criminals. They're carrying for self-defense. They're carrying because they live in a bad neighborhood. And as those arrests increase in Baltimore, so too do the homicide rate. So too do the violent crime rate. The great thing about Operation Ceasefire is by focusing on those most violent offenders, overall arrests tend to drop. 
But overall, crime drops even more. So there's something for both the left and the right to appreciate about this program. The left who complains about overcriminalization and overincarceration, well, you, you see less of that with programs like Operation Ceasefire. The right who complains about more gun control laws being put on the books, none of that. There's no new gun control associated with this program. It's effective, it's affordable, it's constitutional, and yet the Biden administration has virtually no interest in trying to put programs like this in place around the country. They are continuing to embrace a ban their way to safety ideology, which is not going to make anybody any safer, but it's certainly going to make uh, all of us less free. All right, stick around. We've got more of Tony Cass today coming up right after this quick timeout. You are listening once again to uh, Tony Cass. We'd love to hear from you as well. 833-468-8669. 833-GOT-TONY. We'll be back with more right after this. Hey, it's Tony Katz today. My name is Cam Edwards, editor at BearingArms.com. I promise, by the way, although we do focus on Second Amendment news and issues there at the website, it's not going to be three hours of talk about your gun rights today. I promise. But the White House is hosting a uh, a ton of anti-gun politicians. That's probably more than 2,000 pounds if you actually weighed them all together. Uh, and they are going to be talking about gun control today. In fact, the uh, New York Times I love their coverage of this. Uh, this, this you got to, you know, sometimes you got to read the subtext from the liberal media. This is the headline from the New York Times. Biden looks to promote his plan to reduce gun violence as he focuses on embattled pieces of his agenda. Embattled meaning unpopular and uh, things that can't get through Congress. Uh, as the New York Times writes, unveiled late last month, Mr. Biden's plan largely encourages jurisdictions across the country to do what they can to bring down violent crime as hopes for federal legislation grows dim. It includes urging local agencies to draw on $350 billion in funds from his $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package to support law enforcement. Mr. Biden has also directed the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives to more quickly revoke the licenses of gun dealers who fail to run background checks. But as the White House seeks to combat a surge in violence, the issue is politically freighted for Mr. Biden. Republicans have accused him of being soft on crime. But as a presidential candidate, he declined to embrace calls from the progressive wing of his own party to defund police departments after police shootings of African-Americans. And as president, he has called for more investment in law enforcement agencies. Mr. Biden, the paper writes, has called on Congress to pass measures that would close background check loopholes, quote unquote, restrict, quote unquote, assault weapons and repeal gun manufacturers immunity from lawsuits. But there is little appetite for a bipartisan gun control effort. Yeah, you think? And this is interesting, particularly for those of you uh, who's been following this nomination closely. The New York Times writes and David Chipman. Mr. Biden's nominee to lead the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Farms and Explosives faces slim odds as his confirmation process drags on. Mr. Chipman, a two decade bureau veteran, has a record of taking on the gun lobby in confrontational and unapologetic terms, writes The New York Times. Yeah, because he's a paid gun control activist. David Chipman spent 25 years at the ATF. He spent most of the last 10 years employed by Michael Bloomberg. With every town for gun safety, actually mayors against illegal guns was the group he was working for. And most recently, Giffords, the gun control group started by former Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords and her husband, former astronaut and now junior senator from Arizona, Mark Kelly. He's, he's a paid gun control lobbyist. So, yeah, he, he's been, quote unquote, confrontational and unapologetic about taking on the gun lobby because he's a bought and paid for gun control activist. But it is interesting for The New York Times to say 
that uh, Chipman's nomination uh, now has uh, slim odds because the left has been very reluctant to acknowledge that Chipman's nomination is in trouble at all. And in fact, you know, when you do the, the, the head counting, you've basically got Chipman needs to get 50 votes so that Kamala Harris can cast the 51st vote. So they're going to need, Democrats are going to need every Democrat to stick together, or they're going to need at least one Republican to cross over. There are a couple of, you know, moderate Republicans that are, are still kind of silent about what they're going to do with Chipman. Susan Collins of Maine came out a couple of weeks ago and said, I'm a no. Can't vote for him. That, that was good news. Uh, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska hasn't said anything. Alaska's a constitutional carry state. And while Lisa Murkowski's approval ratings among Republicans are in the toilet right now, she does plan on running for re-election. She ran uh, actually as a write-in last time around and won. But I don't think she's going to do that if she votes to put a committed anti-gun activist in charge of the ATF. So I, I, I suspect that Murkowski is a no as well. Uh, in fact, of the Republicans, I, I think that if, if any of them are likely to cross over and vote for David Chipman, it would probably be uh, Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania, who is retiring, who has worked with Joe Manchin trying to get background checks uh, through uh, the Senate since 2013. Toomey has not said anything about uh, Chipman's nomination, but he would be the most likely candidate. Meanwhile, on the Democrat side, Joe Manchin himself says that he is truly undecided as to what he's going to do. West Virginia, I remind you, is another constitutional carry state, uh, home to a lot of gun owners. Uh, Kirsten Cinema of Arizona has also been silent on Chipman's nomination. I'm sure she's getting lobbied by her uh, colleague there, Mark Kelly from Arizona, who you know has been uh, helping to sign the paychecks for David Chipman at Giffords. But Arizona, too, is a constitutional carry state. And there will be a voter backlash uh, if uh, Cinema is the 51st vote or the 50th vote, allowing Kamala Harris to be the 51st vote uh, to approve Chipman's nomination. So I, I, I'm actually I'm I'm kind of pleased to see The New York Times say that uh, Chipman faces slim odds because that tells me that there is more trouble behind the scenes for that nomination that we may realize which would be very, very good news for gun owners if, in fact, we could uh, ensure that Chipman goes down to defeat. All right, that music means we are out of time here in Hour 1. When we come back, though, we're going to turn our attention to what's going on beyond our borders in Cuba where they're protesting against the communist regime. What does the Biden administration have to say in response? We'll tell you all about it here on Tony Katz Today. Thanks for tuning in to Tony Katz today. Tony is off smoking cigars somewhere, I'm, I'm assuming. Uh, my name is Cam Edwards, editor at BearingArms.com. Glad to be with you on the program. Phone numbers to call 833-GOT-TONY. That's 833-468-8669. So over the weekend, we saw something pretty remarkable happen in Cuba. Thousands of protesters taking to the streets, some of them actually waving American flags and they're protesting not just the lack of health care in the country. Uh, the COVID pandemic is awful in Cuba, by the way. And a lot of the country's best doctors are not even on the island. Uh, the Cuban government has basically exported them overseas so they can 
you know, do their doctor stuff uh, in places and get paid for in uh, hard currency. That then goes back to the regime itself. And meanwhile, you know, the, the Cubans, who are supposed to be the beneficiaries of the glorious revolution led by Fidel Castro in the uh, 1950s, uh, they're wondering why they're actually paying the price, why the regime is failing them. Well, some of them are wondering. I, I, think, I think some residents give it no darn well why the regime is failing them, because communism fails. So they took to the streets over the weekend. The first response, by the way, from the Biden administration was just tone deaf. Julie Chung, uh, who is a uh, State Department official, uh, assistant secretary uh, at the uh, State Department, said uh, on Twitter, peaceful protests are growing in hashtag Cuba as the Cuban people exercise their right to peaceful assembly to express concern about rising COVID cases and deaths and medicine shortages. We commend the numerous efforts of the Cuban people mobilizing donations to help neighbors in need. Yeah, uh, you know, it could have been anybody, right? Anywhere. Could have been Cuba. Could have been Colorado she was talking about. Weak sauce there from the Biden administration. Well, Biden himself sounding off today. Uh, with a a better statement. He said, uh, quote, We stand with the Cuban people and their clarion call for freedom and relief from the tragic grip of the pandemic and from the decades of repression and economic suffering to which they've been subjected by Cuba's authoritarian regime. The Cuban people are bravely asserting fundamental and universal rights. Those rights, including the right of peaceful protest and the right to freely determine their own future, must be respected. The United States calls on the Cuban regime to hear their people and serve their needs at this vital moment rather than enriching themselves. Not a perfect statement by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, It it is not merely an authoritarian regime in Cuba. It's a communist regime. Call it what it is. Biden administration apparently can't do that. But he does note that the protests are not simply about the Cuban government's response to COVID, but uh, indeed are uh, about the decades of repression as well. Now, it it could be noted, and maybe should be noted, that uh, Biden's response may be a little more forceful than uh, what that initial response was from the State Department, uh, in part because Biden uh, recognizes the importance of cuban americans as as voters particularly in the state of florida and of course biden is paying very close attention to uh, every situation right now through the lens of the midterms in fact democrats themselves and republicans too it should be noted i mean we are still more than a year away from the midterm elections but for the parties they're already focused on 2022 And, you know, for Joe Biden, historically, the party that's in power loses seats. If you have the White House, you tend to lose seats in Congress. Democrats can't afford to lose any seats in Congress in the midterms. I mean, they're they're already, you know, basically stuck in neutral in terms of advancing Joe Biden's policy agenda because they don't have 60 votes in the Senate and they don't have 51 votes to kill the filibuster. But if they were to lose the House completely, which I think is likely, if they were to lose the Senate completely, which I think is a very strong possibility, then not only does Biden's agenda grind to a halt on Capitol Hill, but now you've got Republicans who are in charge of these committees 
who can start, you know, investigating things like, I don't know, Hunter Biden. And that's the last thing that the Biden administration wants. So I think Biden is going to uh, he's going to have to talk tough about Cuba in an effort to try to lure some Cuban-Americans away from the Republican Party. Typically, uh, Cuban-American voters side with the GOP. But if, if Biden can somehow, you know, throw them a bone or two, uh, then maybe he can try to, uh, to, to get at least a little more Democratic support uh, from that voting block. Of course, if he speaks up, and out against the regime in Cuba, then Cuba uh, gets to uh, blame these protests on American interference. And that's exactly what Miguel Diaz-Canal, the uh, dictator there of communist Cuba, has done. Uh, yesterday, he made televised remarks calling the protests a form of, quote, systemic provocation by dissidents doing the bidding of the United States. He said that Washington in recent months had sought to destabilize and weaken the island's economy as part of a policy designed to, quote, provoke a massive social implosion. Uh, Grandma, the Cuban Communist Party newspaper, sounds like such a sweet name for a newspaper, doesn't it? Did you hear what Grandma said? But it's not sweet. It's an evil grandma. Now, the uh, Cuban Communist Party newspaper said in a uh, reference to demonstrators, that people who took to the streets on Sunday included government supporters who, quote, may have been confused by disinformation on social media. Uh, Canal, by the way, uh, Diaz Canal, had called for pro-government demonstrators to take to the streets. He, he wants to see them out there combating verbally, if not physically, those who are marching for freedom in Cuba. And he said that those pro-democracy protesters will have to get past the, quote, dead bodies of the communists to end the dictatorship, saying, quote, we are willing to do everything to keep the regime in power, including, presumably, targeting the, uh, the Cuban people themselves. Maybe that's something that uh, he and Biden could talk about. You know, Biden has uh, also previously uh, talked about using nuclear weapons and F-15s against uh, those Americans who uh, might try to uh, exercise their Second Amendment rights. And now you've got uh, the dictator of Cuba saying, we'll do everything to stay in power. On social media yesterday, there were multiple reports of the Cuban secret police uh, dressed in plain clothes who were attacking pro-democracy uh, pro demonstrators, uh, including uh, one individual who pulled out a revolver, pointed it at a protester who then uh, shouted at him, shoot me in the chest. And then uh, added an expletive afterwards. A, uh, another video showed a woman whose nose had been broken by the uh, state security forces. Another peaceful protester. Uh, her friend on camera uh, saying, yes, they're beating women. There are reports that uh, the Cuban regime has just taken the Internet offline in some parts of the nation to try to prevent pro-democracy protesters from communicating with one another. Now, I don't know where this goes. It, it could very well be that, um, you know, these protests fizzle out as opposed to gain in strength and intensity. We, we don't know which way it's going to tip right now. If I had to guess, I, I would guess that they are going to ultimately fizzle out. 
because I, I, I think that in order for them to really gain momentum, you are going to have to see support from the United States in a way that I think the Biden administration is reluctant to do. I think the Biden administration is uh, perfectly willing to talk the talk, but I don't think that they are willing to walk the walk. Um, Representative Val Demings uh, from Florida, Democrat, said, uh, America stands for freedom. We must stand with the peaceful demonstrators in Cuba as they struggle for theirs. Not only freedom from tyranny and dictatorship, but freedom from disease, poverty, and corruption. The White House must move swiftly. Freedom shall and must prevail. But what exactly did she call on the White House to do? Nothing specific. Right? I don't, and I don't think you will see any specific calls from Democrats. And again, the far left uh, of the uh, Democratic Party, they're not happy seeing American flags being waved by protesters in Cuba because they want to turn this country into Cuba. You've got Nancy Pelosi, uh, you know, establishment uh, a Democrat, saying the call for freedom and basic rights by the people of Cuba peacefully taking to the streets and marching is an act of great courage. I support the Cuban people in their pursuit of liberty and condemn any violence or targeting of those exercising their rights. Okay, that's a fine thing to say. Here's my question. Where's AOC on this? Where's Elon Omar on Cuba? Where is Rashida Tlaib on Cuba? I can't find anything. She's talking about uh, apartheid Israel right now, Rashida Tlaib is. This is, this is from her Twitter feed today. Uh, the simple desire to live is criminalized in some of the most inhumane ways in Israel, like not allowing a mother to truly mourn the loss of her daughter. She uh, writes, apartheid Israel denies rights to mixed couples. So if a Palestinian falls in love and marries an Israeli, she writes to prohibit to live in certain neighborhoods and won't get the same benefits as other married couples. Uh, let's see, something about Michigan flooding. Yeah, no, I don't think I don't think Rashida Tlaib has spoken out at all in support of the uh, pro-democracy protesters in Cuba. Uh, looking to see if AOC has said anything. No, not seeing anything from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I mean, you know, she was really quick to talk about what was going on with her abuela in Puerto Rico. But uh, when it comes to, you know, what's going on with the uh, Cuban regime destroying the uh, livelihoods and the lives of the people of Cuba, no, AOC doesn't have much to say about that. Very strange, isn't it? Huh. Can't can't say, you know, because, again, they can't speak up in favor of a communist dictatorship. As much as they might want to, most of them realize that's bad politics here in the United States. But they also can't speak in defense of those protesters, because ultimately, I don't think they they like what those protesters are doing, waving the American flag, calling for an end to communism. So instead, the AOC's of Congress, the uh, the squad itself, awfully silent, not speaking up in defense of democracy and uh, not speaking up to uh, slam the communist dictatorship in Cuba.
All right, we're going to take a, a quick timeout. We've got much more of Tony Katz today coming up. So stick around. We'll be back with much more right after this. It's Tony Katz today. My name is Cam Edwards, editor at BearingArms.com. In for Mr. Katz today and tomorrow as well, by the way. Taking your uh, phone calls at 833-GOT-TONY, 833-468-8669. We've been talking about what's going on in Cuba, where uh, thousands of individuals taking to the streets over the weekend, protesting the communist regime. The uh, Biden administration's first response, pretty milk toast. Yeah, we encourage the uh, Cuban people to help their neighbors. Didn't really say anything at all about uh, why these uh, protests had broken out. Biden with a, a better statement today, uh, still refusing to acknowledge the uh, communist regime in Cuba, calling it a uh, merely an authoritarian regime. Uh, meanwhile, NBC uh, reporting that a defiant Cuban president lashing out at the U.S. embargo uh, against Cuba on Monday. In response to these uh, protests over the weekend, President Miguel Diaz-Canal said that a politics of, quote, economic asphyxiation was having an effect throughout Cuba. Uh, he said, uh, what is their origin, the economic issues in, in Cuba? What's their cause? He says, it's the blockade. It's the United States to blame. He says the Cuban protests were the result of a U.S. and social media campaign to manipulate people while the island is facing hardship during the pandemic and addressing the uh, people of Cuba, he said it was legitimate, quote, to have dissatisfactions. But we also have to be capable, uh, capable to visualize, to define when we're being manipulated, where they want to separate us. Oh, legitimate to have dissatisfactions, but uh, just don't say anything about it. Because if you say something about it, that, that, that's, that's when you're being manipulated here. He said forces that want to appear as saviors to Cuba, quote, are not interested in the health of the people. They want to change a system or a regime, they call it, to impose what type of government and what type of regime in Cuba? The privatization of public services, the kind that gives more possibly to the rich minority and not the majority. Oh, yeah, because that never happens in communist countries, right? I mean, in socialist countries, everybody has economic equality, <clears throat> right? I mean, you don't have, you know, Nicolas Maduro and his family as some of the wealthiest individuals in Venezuela. Oh, no, they're, they're, not, they're not billionaires in a socialist country. Uh, you don't have billionaires in communist China who are allowed to grow wealthy as long as they stand on the right side of the communist regime there. No, no. Once a country calls itself communist, oh, everybody's equal. Yeah. There's, there, there is no rich minority because everybody's equally poor. That's not even the case. The vast majority of people in Cuba and in China and in Venezuela and other communist nations uh, not only do not enjoy individual liberty and freedom, they do not enjoy economic security. There is a disparity of wealth that exists in those socialist countries, just like there is a disparity of wealth that exists in capitalist countries. The difference between those two countries or those two systems of government is that in a capitalist market, in a free market, the opportunity to better yourself and your position is not contingent, at least it shouldn't be contingent, on uh, getting the approval and the help of the government, which is the case in these communist nations. 
uh, Diaz Canal uh, uh, denouncing what he called the Cuban Mafia in Miami as well. Referring to uh, Cuban-American community members and uh, lawmakers opposed to the communist government. Yeah, that, that, that's going to go over well here in the United States. Uh, NBC says Cuba currently facing its worst economic crisis in decades following the collapse of the Soviet Union. Worsened by the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, which is true. It says the pandemic drove uh, tourism, which was a critical driver of the island economy, to a halt. The country has since seen food shortages, power outages, and mounting coronavirus cases. All of which is true. And other nations have also, in fact, I would argue every other nation on earth has dealt with those same challenges. Most of them have not resulted in food shortages. Most of them have not resulted in a loss of economic uh, power or uh, even physical power. You know, the, the lights are still on in most other countries, uh, even those that have been dealing with the, uh, the pandemic over the last year and a half. It's not the case in Cuba. And the embargo, I, I would actually like to hope, would have had some sort of impact. But the embargo alone cannot account for the failures of the communist regime in Cuba. No, no. For that, you have to blame those in charge of Cuba itself. And it could be a better place, but not under communism. All right, stick around. We've got more of Tony Katz today on the way but first we need to step away do a little business we'll be back with more right after this it's tony katz today it is uh, cam edwards in for tony katz and i you know i i was honestly planning on uh, moving on from the uh, protests in cuba but there's there's one more thing i got to talk about here uh, because I'm looking at a story. This is from uh, a Fox News. Fox News host Dan Bongino said Monday he's not at all surprised by the New York Times framing of the protests in Cuba, calling the paper's controversial tweet on the rallies outside uh, the country's communist dictatorship a window into the far left's vision of the world. So this was the tweet. And I actually I love Dan. Dan and I are friends. I actually I think I, I disagree, though, with Dan's take on this. This was the Times tweet on Sunday, quote, shouting freedom and other anti-government slogans. Hundreds of Cubans took to the streets in cities around the country on Sunday to protest food and medicine shortages in a remarkable eruption of discontent not seen in nearly 30 years. Well, Bongino said, uh, quote, you won't see a tweet that better summarizes the massive divide between the ideological right and the ideological left in America today. The government doesn't give you freedoms. Does everyone understand that? Those freedoms are granted to you by God. The way the left sees it in their vision of the world is that freedom is somehow granted to you by government. So I, I get what Dan's saying, and I don't disagree with, with what Dan is saying, but I don't see, look, in Cuba, the fact of the matter is that chanting freedom is an anti-government slogan. Freedom is anti-government in Cuba because the government in Cuba is anti-freedom. So I know that we love to go after the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Biden Administration over, over everything. But I, I don't see that as a, uh, as a tweet that reveals some sort of uh, worldview of the New York Times. And by the way, I think that the New York Times, editorially speaking, and probably for most of the reporters too, I think they do have a soft spot for socialism. I think that there are likely many New York Times staffers today who are disappointed that the people of Cuba took to the streets over the weekend in the biggest protests in over 30 years. 
because that tells them that not everything is, is as great in Cuba as they want it to be. But freedom in the context that the Cubans were chanting it yesterday was very much an anti-government slogan because they are demanding their freedom from government oppression, which again is a hallmark of these communist regimes. I am a, uh, I'm a, I'm a history nerd. I've talked about this when I filled in for Tony before. I love to read. One of my dorkiest habits is I, I read nonfiction books from like the 1930s, 40s, and 50s to help me understand the history of that time. So like current events books, but they were written in 1934, 1935. Uh, and I've done a lot of reading. I'm actually reading a book right now that came out in, I believe it was, 1935. Uh, and it was about the Soviet Union. It was written by one of the first individuals to actually not just defect from the Soviet Union, but to flee the Soviet Union. Uh, he was in the Gulag, and this is in the 30s, before most people in the United States even knew uh, what the Gulag was or that the Gulag existed. It's called I Speak for the Silent. And if you are a, uh, if you're a fan of conservative history, you may know the name Whitaker Chambers. He wrote the book Witness, one of the uh, uh, most powerful books of the 1950s. Whitaker Chambers was a former communist who became a conservative uh, in the 1950s and was really one of the leading anti-communists. The book that convinced him, he said, to, to leave communism and to actually leave the communist underground at risk of uh, his own health and safety and the safety of his family was this book called I Speak for the Silent, Prisoners of the Soviets. It was by a guy named Vladimir Chernavin, who was uh, basically you know, in a forced labor camp and escaped with his wife and son to Finland uh, in the 1930s. And he wrote this entire, he wrote his life story, basically. Published in 1935. There's a whole genre of books I call, you know, it's, it's, it's the defector stories. His was one of the first, but they continued throughout the 1930s, 40s, 50s. Today, you'll see the same genre of people who have fled communist China or people who have fled North Korea. And they're writing from safety and from a place of freedom in the West. There is no corollary, by the way. You don't have, I mean, like, you know, you got me sitting here in a capitalist country spending uh, some of my hard-earned money every now and then on buying an old book and, and, and reading about those who fled communist countries for a better life. There's nobody in Beijing right now collecting books written by Americans who fled the United States and moved to China or moved to the Soviet Union. Those books don't exist for the most part. I mean, it may, it maybe, you know, there are one or two individuals who uh, fled to the Soviet Union because they were busted on espionage charges uh, in the United States or in England. But there really is no defector genre in communist countries because we don't have to defect. If we don't like it here, we can simply leave. Nobody's keeping us in the United States, unlike... In Cuba, if you want to leave Cuba, how do you do it? You get on a boat, don't you? And you set out heading north, hoping that you can make it to U.S. soil or that the U.S. Coast Guard will pick you up at sea. 
You don't, you don't just simply immigrate away from Cuba. That's not allowed. Communist countries, they like walls. They like walls even more than Republicans like walls. Only in communist countries, the walls aren't meant to keep people out. The walls are meant to keep people in. To prevent them from leaving for a better place. And again, we've seen this for decades in Cuba. We know the lack of freedom that exists in that country. And we know that Cubans chanting and shouting for their freedom is in fact an anti-government act. Not, not, not an anarchist act. They're not opposed to every system of government. They're not saying, uh, you know, we want to live in complete anarchy. No. They are speaking out against their government. And many of them, again, are waving American flags because they know that the system of government here in the United States, as messy as it is, as convoluted as it is, as much as the left might hate the right and the right might hate the left, they know that that's far better than the system that they live in right now, where the left hates everybody who's not the left. And if you are caught, you know, reading a... Uh, again, if, if you, under, under the Trump administration... If somebody on the left was caught reading, let's say, The Handmaid's Tale, what happened to them? Nothing happened to them, right? If you're in Cuba right now and you're caught reading George Orwell, 1984, what happens to you? Well, that's counter-revolutionary propaganda right there. And that's not allowed by the state. So you could be facing arrest. You could be facing prison time. You could lose your job. If you're a member of the Communist Party, you could certainly be expelled, which is a, a, a greater form of cancellation. I mean, the communists really are the pioneers of cancel culture. And again, you've got a growing number of Cubans who are not only fed up with this, but they're now finding the courage to speak out. I, I, I truly hope that this is the beginning of something big, but they're going to need some help from the rest of the world to make that happen. And I don't know that the Biden administration is, uh, I don't think they're up for it. I don't think they're up for the confrontation. We have certainly seen them take a very weak position when it comes to China, when it comes to Russia. And I suspect that uh, that is the starting point for the Biden administration when it comes to Cuba as well. All right, when we, turn our, uh, when we come back, though, we do need to take a quick break. But we are going to turn our attention to domestic politics. I mentioned uh, this country, you know, not a perfect place. We do have our problems. And uh, Democrats are providing a problem for Republicans in the Lone Star state of Texas. We'll fill you in on all the details right after this. Stick around. More of Tony Katz today. It's coming up next. Tony Katz today is the name of the show. Cam Edwards is the name of, well, me, the guy who's sitting in for Tony today. Taking your phone calls at 833-GOT-TONY, 833-468-8669. News from the Lone Star State, where uh, Democrats apparently willing to flee the state capitol, actually flee the borders of the state of Texas uh, in order to try to prevent uh, election integrity laws from uh, being voted on 
at least 58 Democratic members of the State House of Representatives are expected to flee the state of Texas today uh, in an effort to block these measures from advancing during a special session of the legislature. That uh, from a source familiar with the plans, talking to NBC News, uh, the majority of the members plan to fly to Washington, D.C. on two private jets chartered for the occasion uh, and use their time in our nation's capital to rally support for federal voting legislation. Uh, according to the source, others, the source says, will make their own way. I got to tell you, if you're looking for perhaps the worst possible messaging, flying to Washington, D.C. on two private jets. Yeah, that's a pretty good way to a show that you are completely out of touch with the average voter in the state of Texas. Uh, as NBC News points out, these Democrats risk arrest by uh, taking off under the Texas Constitution. The legislature requires a quorum of two-thirds of lawmakers be present to conduct state business in either chamber. Absent lawmakers can be legally compelled to return to the Capitol. Uh, and the uh, source who spoke to NBC News said that Democrats do expect state Republicans to ask the Department of Public Safety to track down the recalcitrant lawmakers. The last time that uh, Democrats did this was 2003. Uh, and I remember this because I was living in Oklahoma at the time, and that's where a lot of the Democrats actually fled to. They, they went right across the border. They were hanging out in southern Oklahoma uh, near a, a place called Lake Texoma. Uh, most of them had checked into a resort there. They were just sort of camped out right across the border uh, so that they could deny Republicans their quorum. That did not go well for Democrats, ultimately. Uh, again, it, it, it did not hurt them, or excuse me, it did not help them uh, electorally speaking. Uh, it did not help uh, prevent legislation from passing, the legislation that they'd objected to. But I guess now it's been almost another generation uh, for politicians. So most of the Democrats in office now were not around in 2003. They don't recall the disastrous consequences of their running away. And so they are willing to do this again. Uh, now, the reason why Texas is even in a special session at the moment is because Democrats stayed away from the state capitol in the waning days of the regular session, walking out, uh, denying them a quorum, and forcing Republicans to adjourn the session without, able to, uh, without being able to vote on these election integrity laws. Uh, but Abbott called a special session, started July the 8th. Republicans in control of both sessions or both the chambers. So they, you know, said, OK, we're good to go. Uh, lawmakers very quickly started dealing with these election integrity measures. Uh, and they advanced uh, a House bill and a Senate bill on Sunday after committee hearings in both chambers. The uh, House hearing lasted nearly 24 hours. Uh, floor votes expected to take place as soon as this week. And yet the Democrats, uh, again, apparently going to flee the state of Texas in private jets, no less, and uh, go lobby in Washington, D.C. For, for the Democrats' H.R. 1, the federal voting bill that does not have the votes to get through the Senate. Joe Manchin has said it's unacceptable in its current form, but Joe Manchin has also said he's not nuking the filibuster at all. So what's the point of this? This is a, a pure political stunt. Uh, now, to block the current legislation, lawmakers would have to stay away through the end of the special session. The special session can last as long as 30 days under the state's constitution. They were called into session on July the 8th. So they would have to stay away for about three weeks or so 
And every day, Republicans in the state of Texas get to, uh, you know, bash Democrats over the head with their refusal to do their job. Back in 2003, as I mentioned, more than 50 House Democrats left the state, tried to block a redistricting proposal. The plan ultimately passed the state house. And then Democrat state senators fled to New Mexico. Eventually, one of them returned home. And the Republicans were able to get their quorum. And the redistricting bill then passed the state senate and it was signed into law. This is something else to keep in mind. You know, if you are a Democrat representing uh, downtown Austin, you, you probably aren't going to feel the pressure to return home. In fact, quite the opposite. Your constituents may very well say, stay away. Don't come back until the special session's over. But not every Democrat in the state of Texas represents a deep blue urban district. And in fact, Democrats in Texas have already seen at the federal level a number of House seats in traditional Democratic strongholds flip to Republicans. That happened in November of last year along the Rio Grande Valley. These are, again, places where Democrats would routinely win with 60, 65% of the vote. And these seats flipped to Republicans last year, in large part because of border issues and border concerns. Concerns, by the way, that have only grown since the Biden administration has taken control of the powers of federal government. So whether or not Democrats, they, they may be able to get enough Democrats to, uh, to, to flee the state of Texas right now to stop a vote from taking place this week. But there are going to be a lot of swing district Democrats who are going to be feeling the pressure to get back home, to let the legislature do its job. Keep in mind, you know, we've just seen polling over the past week or so regarding Americans' attitudes towards things like requiring ID to vote. And the vast majority of Americans, including the vast majority of Democrats, are supportive of these measures. And yet now you've got the Democrats in Texas who are trying to deny a vote on these issues. And I don't think it's going to play well. Not only among Republicans, certainly, but among a lot of independents as well. Even some, I think, conservative Democrats are going to have a real issue with this. So I think this is ultimately going to be a stunt. I suspect that the votes are going to take place. Maybe some Democrat billionaires will uh, pick up the bill and they can stay in D.C. for the next three weeks. But I just don't see that happening. And this is a uh, political problem of the Democrats' own devising, like many of their problems. All right, stick around. Hour three of Tony Katz today. It's coming up right after this. We'll be back with more in just a minute. Thanks so much for being a part of Tony Katz today. Mr. Katz is off doing something fun and extraordinary, I'm sure. Uh, my name is Cam Edwards. I'm the editor at BearingArms.com. Glad to be with you for the next hour or so. I'll be with you tomorrow as well. And we have a, a lot to talk about. We've been discussing uh, Joe Biden and his meeting of the anti-gun minds at the White House, uh, bringing in gun control activists and anti-gun police chiefs uh, to uh, try to promote the idea that Joe Biden is actually able to do anything at all 
about the uh, increase in violent crime in American cities. Also uh, talking about what's going on in Cuba and the uh, the, the, the not-so-shocking lack of support for the uh, pro-democracy protesters there among the squad here in the United States. And, you know, look, I mean, the Democrats, they, they are... They're feeling it right now. You know, they, it's, it's one thing to lurch to the left when you're not in power, uh, believing that that is the way to uh, regain electoral majorities. Didn't really work out too great for him in the 2020 elections. Yes, I know that Joe Biden was, uh, you know, uh, elected president, but Republicans gained seats in the House. Uh, if it weren't for Georgia, Republicans would have uh, held on to the U.S. Senate as well. And it's becoming readily apparent uh, that, you know, over the last year, Democrats have not only uh, burned a lot of, well, some Democratic supporters have burned a lot of buildings, but Democrats have also burned a lot of bridges uh, among independent voters and, and even some conservative Democrats with their embrace of this far left agenda. And so now, even in places that are some of the most far left localities in the country, you're starting to see Democrats sing a little different tune. Los Angeles, for example, L.A. County, no one's ever going to confuse Los Angeles County uh, with, uh, let's say, oh, I don't know, a, a, a uh, you know, the state of West Virginia where every county went red in 2020. I mean, this is one of the most, not only geographically speaking, far left places in the country, but politically speaking, one of the most far left places as well. And Alex Villanueva, who's the sheriff, he ran for election as sort of a dark horse candidate four years ago. He promised at the time that he would ban federal immigration agents from working inside Los Angeles County jails. Said that he supported efforts to expand social services to illegal immigrants. He uh, attended LGBTQ events, spoke to a Feel the Burn Democratic Club, and actually said he wanted to see the state's cash bail system repealed. And he ended up getting this sort of coalition of far-left supporters and some Democratic establishment figures, uh, as well as the backing of the uh, the, the police union uh, that uh, serves the uh, deputies there in uh, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, and he won election. Uh, Mark Gonzalez, the chair of the L.A. County Democratic Party, said at a campaign event a couple of weeks before the election in 2018, he's going to be our guy. And he was. He won. And, uh, and, and for a while, he made the left very happy. He removed ICE agents from L.A. County jails. He, uh, you know, brought forward steps to make the department a more transparent place. But he has shifted to the right considerably. Now, he's done. when somebody in Los Angeles County shifts to the right considerably, they're still a Democrat. Don't get me wrong. But he is running a much more conservative campaign for re-election in 2022 than he ran in 2018. As a matter of fact, it's gotten so bad that the same LA County Democratic Party that endorsed Villanueva as a candidate four years ago held a uh, meeting last month and more than 90% of the voting members in attendance voted to call for the sheriff's resignation. Yeah, the uh, current chair of the 
Democratic Party in LA County says there's a, a feeling, a sense of, did we get a lemon? The Los Angeles Times, writing about the rightward shift of Alex Villanueva, says that the sheriff did not show up at that virtual meeting to defend himself, but he refused to concede the idea that had got him elected. Hours before the vote, his reelection campaign sent out an email touting him as a progressive Democrat who had swept out of office a predecessor who was, quote, deporting immigrants and racially profiling drivers. The day after this L.A. County Democratic meeting, Villanueva dismissed the county Democrats as, quote, very wealthy west side of town folks who don't represent Democrats overall and don't represent the majority of residents in L.A. County. And the Sheriff's Department said in a statement that the Democratic Party in L.A. had been hijacked by a, quote, radical far-left agenda. So he still calls himself a progressive Democrat, but even as a self-described progressive Democrat, he says that the Democratic Party overall has been hijacked by a, quote, radical far-left agenda. Now, to me, that sounds like he's kind of talking out of both sides of his mouth. You, you, your mileage may vary on that, but, I, you know, if, if you're embracing the progressive label while decrying the progressive politics, I, I don't know that that actually does you much good. On the issue of concealed carry, an issue that is near and dear to my heart, Alex Villanueva has also said things that make it seem like he is uh, evolving on the issue, right? He has said, for instance, that his predecessors as sheriff prevented far too many people from being able to obtain a concealed carry license, which is absolutely correct. In Los Angeles County, uh, before Alex Villanueva took over, and even as recently as, let's say, a year ago, you had about 300 to 400 people in a county of 10 million who had a concealed carry license. Because in California, it's up to the county sheriffs to approve or deny these applications. And in L.A. County, self-defense isn't seen as a valid reason to get a carry license. You have to show that you're special that you're different, that there is some unique circumstance in your life that, that places you above the average citizen in terms of being able to carry in self-defense. And again, Villanueva kept this policy in place really until last year. But uh, Villanueva now says that more people carrying will be an effective countermeasure to violent crime. He said, quote, because we have less cops on the street, more crooks, less consequences. You know, what could go wrong with that combination? We're recognizing that the threat to residents is increasing, so we're responding accordingly. Again, what Villanueva says and what he does, however, are, are two different things. The LA Times says during his online broadcast, Villanueva often gives boastful updates on the progress that he's made on his plans to quintuple the number of concealed weapons permits his department issues. Uh, in April, he said, quote, we've now issued more CCWs than the last three sheriffs combined. Now, again, out of context, that sounds amazing, right? It makes me want to vote for him. But in April, the number of concealed weapons permits that had been issued in L.A. County or, or were getting ready to be issued in L.A. County 
920. 920, that's it. Again, 10 million people in Los Angeles County. 920 concealed carry permits. Compare that to the state of Indiana. July the 1st, new law went into effect in the state of Indiana, right? Scrapping the fees for concealed carry licenses. Lifetime concealed carry licenses. It used to be 125 bucks. Now it's zero. Now you still got to pay a third party fingerprinting fees. It'll run you maybe $25, $30. So it's not entirely cost free. But the state mandated fee has gone away. What happened in the first week that that new law was on the books in Indiana? 15,000 people applied for their concealed carry license. 15,000 in one week. And this is in a state that has had concealed carry on the books for decades now. You've had a shall issue system in place. And by the way, there are about half as many people in Indiana, the entire state, as there are in Los Angeles County. A little little bit more than half. 6.7 million people living in Indiana, 10 million or so people living in Los Angeles County. Yeah, if, if Villanueva is serious about recognizing the threat to residents that he says is increasing, he's going to have to increase the number of concealed carry permits by more than 500% because he's starting from such a low, low total. A, a county the size of Los Angeles should have, I would say, look, if you're looking at maybe 5%, of the population obtaining their concealed carry license, which is in some cases maybe below average, depending on what state you're looking at. I would say in California, that's probably about right. So 5% of 10 million people is a lot more than 920 concealed carry licenses. The thing is that Alex Villanueva says he wants to issue more licenses, but he's not actually changing what it takes to get one you you still have to demonstrate some sort of special need in order for the los angeles county sheriff's office to sign off on your california handgun permit and if you're not able to articulate some sort of special need you still don't get a license if you went to the la county sheriff and you said hey listen the threat to my personal safety is increasing because of the violent crime, because we have less cops on the street, more crooks and less consequences, as the sheriff said. And this, just like the sheriff said, the threat to me is increasing as a result. So I would like people to carry a fine for self-defense. You know what the sheriff's office is going to say? No. <laughs> That's exactly what they're going to say. Not a good enough reason. Can, can you document some sort of specific ongoing threat against your life? Well, no, but I mean, the sheriff said the threat to my safety is increasing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but can you show us that you are at a greater risk of violence than your neighbor? And if you can't do that, well, then you don't get a license. So I, I, I find this fascinating because I don't think that Villanueva has actually really changed who he is. But I do think that he recognizes that the best opportunity for him to win re-election 
And I would say that there are other Democrats that are also making the same calculation around the country is not to embrace the far left wing of the Democratic Party as he did four years ago. But that's actually at this moment in time, a, a disastrous move, even for Democrats in places like Los Angeles. So it's not like he's going to, you know, become a Republican. He's not going to leave the Democratic Party. That, that, would, that would be even dumber in Los Angeles County. But he wants to try to portray himself as some sort of common sense Democrat. Which, based on what I have seen, amounts to far more words than action. Unfortunately for real conservatives out there. All right, we're going to talk more about uh, what Democrats are doing to reinvent themselves in advance of the 2022 midterms. But uh, first, we do need to take a timeout. Stick around, though. We've got more of Tony Katz today coming up right after this. It's Tony Katz today. My name is Cam Edwards, editor at BearingArms.com. In for Tony. And uh, glad to be with you. We've been talking about uh, what's going on and and not just L.A. County, but really, I think, within the Democratic Party. Uh, specifically, we're talking about Alex Villanueva, the sheriff of L.A. County, who ran as a far-left progressive four years ago, got elected, and now is running for re-election, bashing the radical left wing of the Democratic Party while trying to portray himself as a, uh, a more moderating force. Still a, a Democrat. In fact, he still describes himself as a progressive Democrat. But he's also, you know, uh, vowing to increase the number of concealed carry licenses, for instance, in uh, Los Angeles County. He is uh, bashing the defund the police movement. He has appeared uh, at events with uh, conservatives, actual conservatives in California. And I think that this is emblematic of a, a rethinking and a recalculation on the part of not every Democrat out there. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, but many of them, um, Andrew Sullivan, who is definitely a, uh, a left of center uh, writer, he's not a conservative. He is a strong, was a strong supporter of Barack Obama. Uh, but he's also a guy who can call out the left uh, for their excesses. And he has been doing that increasingly uh, over the past, I'd say past year or so. Uh, over to townhall.com, Guy Benson highlights Andrew Sullivan's latest column in which he addresses his critics on the left who, who ask him all the time, what's happened to you, man? You've changed, man. You've become a conservative, man. And Sullivan says, the real question is, what happened to you? Lefties? He says, take a step back. Observe what's happened in our discourse since around 2015. Forget critical race theory for a moment. And ask yourself, is nothing going on here but Republican propaganda and guile? Can you not see that the Republicans may be acting, but they're also reacting? Reacting against something that's right in front of our noses? What is it? He says, it is, I would argue, the sudden, rapid, stunning shift in the belief system of the American elites. It has sent the whole society into a profound cultural dislocation. It is, he writes, in essence, an ongoing moral panic against the specter of white supremacy, which is now bizarrely regarded, he writes, as an accurate description of the largest, freest, most successful multiracial democracy in human history. And he says, we all know what's happened. The elites, increasingly sequestered within one political party, 
and one media monoculture. Educated by colleges and private schools and have become hermetically sealed against any non-left dissent, have had a social justice reckoning these past few years. And they've been ideologically transformed with countless cascading consequences. He's right. He's right. He points uh, to Obama's rhetoric on race versus today's orthodoxy, just, you know, a decade or so later. Uh, Quoting part of Obama's speech about Jeremiah Wright, in which Obama said that Wright's anti-American tirades did not reflect the goodness of the country and the progress that we have been uh, that we have made over the years. In fact, uh, this is what Barack Obama said, quote, Wright's views expressed a profoundly distorted view of this country, a view that sees white racism as endemic and that elevates what is wrong with America above all that we know is right with America. The profound mistake of Reverend Wright's sermons is not that he spoke about racism in our society, it's that he spoke as if our society was static, as if no progress had been made, as if this country, a country that has made it possible for one of his own members to run for the highest office in the land and build a coalition of white and black, Latino and Asian, rich and poor, young and old, is still irrevocably bound to a tragic past. And Sullivan asked progressives, this is what I still believe. Do you? And the answer simply is no. That's not what they believe. From the time that Barack Obama was inaugurated until now, the left has suddenly decided that this country is irredeemably racist and can never be redeemed until we destroy these institutions. All right, stick around. We've got more of Tony Cass today, much more. Trust me, coming up right after this. Thanks again for being a part of Tony Katz today. My name is Cam Edwards. In for Tony, I'll be here tomorrow as well. Phone numbers to call 833-GOT-TONY. That would be 833-468-8669. Talking about uh, the, the staggering incoherence right now of the Democratic messaging as we head into the 2022 midterms. Uh, the establishment Democrats, the, the, the smarter, more politically savvy Democrats, they know that what they are saying is not resonating with a lot of Americans. I mean, again, you look at Joe Biden, going to be uh, hosting his anti-gun confab at the White House today, uh, embracing uh, some crazy anti-gun politicians like San Jose Mayor Sam Licardo, who wants to impose mandatory fees and insurance on all gun owners in the city. Why is Biden doing this? Well, because Biden's upside down when it comes to crime in terms of public polling, and he wants to get himself right side up. So he has to look like he's doing something, but he also can't risk alienating his base. So he can't reach out to, uh, you know, nonpartisan groups or, God forbid, even uh, Second Amendment advocates who might have ideas on how to reduce violent crime without restricting the rights of American citizens. And this is the conundrum that the left finds itself in right now. Their base is so woke that it's turning off a lot of voters. Democrats are aware of this, and they're trying to recalibrate their positions, as we're seeing in Los Angeles County with Alex Villanueva, but they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. If they move too far to the right, they're going to, heck, if they move an inch to the right, they're going to alienate their far-left base. But if they stay where they are, if they continue to embrace things like defunding the police and 
you know, prison abolition and uh, uh, banning guns, they're going to turn off a, a, a bigger swath of the electorate. Uh, over at Axios, they write a growing number of Democrats are ringing the alarm that their party sounds and acts too judgmental, too sensitive, too woke to large swaths of America. These Democrats warn that by jamming politically correct terms or new norms down the throats of voters, they risk exacerbating the cultural wars and inadvertently helping Trumpian candidates. Top Democrats confide to Axios that they are very aware of the danger. Already, we've seen a widespread pullback in the defund the police rhetoric. Moderate and swing district lawmakers and aides tell Axios's Margaret Taleb and Elena Treen that the party could suffer massive losses in next year's midterms if Democrats run like Senator Elizabeth Warren is president. One former Senate aide said it's, quote, bye-bye majority if Democrats run on extreme wokeness. You know, we actually saw that uh, that recognition, I think, right after the November elections. You may remember there was a conference call with Democrat House members, and it got pretty contentious between AOC and a Democrat named Abigail Spanberger, who uh, is a Virginia Democrat, represents a swing district in Virginia, uh, and is someone who has you know, tried successfully at this point to portray herself as a moderate Democrat, right? She likes gun control, but really doesn't want to talk about gun bans. Let's talk about common sense, gun safety laws and things of that nature. Um, she actually said during this conference call, stop talking about socialism. Just stop it. Every time AOC or a member of the squad talks about socialism, it makes it harder for me to win in a suburban swing district. So just quit it. I don't think the left can. Well, you've got these Democrats who recognize, okay, we're going to we're just gonna, we're going to lose voters if we keep this up. They can't control what their base is saying. Case in point, my friend Jazz Shaw has a, a piece at hotair.com today talking about the National Institute of Health. And they've got this online library of medical information. It's called the National Center for Biotechnology Information. And it's sort of a clearinghouse for articles and research papers and studies and things of that nature. Well, one of the reports that they just put up there is called LGBT Testimony and the Limits of Trust. It's written by a woman named Maura Priest, who is not a doctor, by the way, at least not a medical doctor. She's a professor of philosophy and bioethics at Arizona State University. And this report that she authored that's now up at the National Institute of Health website. And by the way, just because the report is up at the NIH doesn't mean that the NIH is endorsing this report. But but this is still what what the far left believes is what Maura Priest is saying. And this is, I think, emblematic of the problems that Democrats are going to have with the electorate come next November. Because while the Democratic politicians may be busy trying to reinvent themselves, as less woke and more moderate, you've got people like Maura Priest who are writing things like, if the medical community is to take LGBT testimony seriously, as they should, then it is no longer the job of physicians to do their own weighing of the costs and benefits of transition-related care. She's talking about people who want to transition to another gender, right? Assuming the patient is informed and competent, then only the patient can make this assessment because only the patient has access to the true weight of transition-related benefits. 
Moreover, she writes, taking LGBT patient testimony seriously also means that parents should lose their veto power over most transition-related pediatric care. So, again, the Democrat politicians recognize, okay, we got a little too woke here. We're turning people off. We got to moderate our message. And here's more a priest screaming, hold my beer. Parents should lose their veto power. If your child says that she wants to be a boy, well, you don't have a say in that. You shouldn't have a say in that. It shouldn't be up to you. It shouldn't be up to a doctor either. It should be up to your child, no matter how old or young they might be. This is insane. This is the type of stuff that gets Republicans elected in blue states. Because it is literally insane. Yeah, I don't I don't talk about my kids that much on uh, social media or on terrestrial radio uh, when I'm sitting in, but I've got five kids. Uh, my oldest two are my stepkids, but they're my kids. I've been married for 24 years, for goodness sakes. They're my kids now. Oldest kids are in their 30s. My youngest kids, twins, boy and girl twins, uh, they just turned 16 this year. When my 16-year-old daughter was just entering puberty she thought for a brief period of time that maybe she was actually a boy inside now this isn't a thought that i planted in her head and i don't even think it was any of her teachers specifically but it's the culture that she is raised in now if you're feeling weird or awkward or unusual when you're going through puberty maybe you're not really the gender that you think that you are and I distinctly remember having this conversation with her when she was like 11 years old. This is probably five years ago. And she said, I, I think maybe I'm a boy. And I said, well, I, you know, I didn't really know what to say. Honestly, I wasn't expecting to have this conversation. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to make her feel ashamed. I didn't want to, and I really didn't want her to shut down on me. I want my kids to be able to come and talk to me. So what I told her was, look, maybe you're going to feel this way a few years from now. But I can tell you that just going through puberty, everything's confusing. And you don't have to, you don't have, to have all this figured out at the moment. The, the, you just need to be the best you that you can be. And see how you feel in a few years. And if you still feel that way in a few years, we'll have another conversation. But, but right now, I just want you to focus on being the best you that you can be. And you know what? We continued talking over the months. And I would say within a year, maybe even less, she had realized, okay, no, I'm, I'm not a boy. That was just something that I was going through, and I'm not. And now she's, I mean, she's as girly and feminine as you could find she loves dresses and loves fashion in a way she didn't five years ago but what would have happened had i followed more a priest's advice five years ago and my 11 year old daughter said i think of a boy and i said well you know best honey I, I can't imagine the lifetime's worth of damage that would have been done 
Had I abdicated my responsibility, had I not exercised my veto power as a parent to say, look, just because you feel this way, we're not going to just leap into you transitioning to becoming a boy. I want you to sit and think about these things. I want you to just give it some time, for goodness sakes. Let your hormones shake out a little bit. Again, and I know there are plenty of conservatives who say, well, why didn't you shame her? (laughs) Why didn't you make her feel bad about saying that? And that's my parenting choice. But again, I don't think I don't think my position is a it w- was a far right position. I think that was actually a fairly moderate point of view to take and a fairly moderate approach to my daughter. But the far left would say, "Oh my god, you're a bigot, Cam. You're so transphobic. Imagine the damage you might have done to your daughter." And that's the left's base at the moment. That, that, that even parents telling an 11-year-old girl, no, we're not going to let you have surgery to become a boy, is seen as a problem, and the, the solution is government intervention to take away the power of parents to help guide their own kids through what is a very difficult and confusing time. That's what the left's base is embracing. And that's why more Americans, including Democrats, like Andrew Sullivan, are finding the left to be too woke for their liking. All right, listen, we need to step away for another uh, quick break, but we've got much more of Tony Katz today on the flip side. So stick around. We'll be back with more right after this. It's Tony Katz today. Cam Edwards, editor of BarryAndArms.com, in for Mr. Katz. I've enjoyed myself so much today. I'm going to do it again tomorrow from noon to 3 Eastern time. Uh, phone number to call is 833-GOT-TONY. That's 833-468-8669. Talking about uh, how the increasingly woke left is giving uh, an increasing amount of heartburn to establishment Democrats who realize that uh, they're, they're, they're losing touch and they're losing common ground with where most Americans are. Not, not even rock-ribbed conservatives, but just average Americans. I'll give you a perfect case in point. What's going on in Washington, D.C. with the uh, football team that used to be called the Washington Redskins. And now they're the Washington football team. And they haven't figured out what their new name is going to be yet. Supposedly, uh, it's coming, I, I think, next year. Uh, But the team president, Jason Wright, says today that whatever the Washington football team's new name is, it will not have any ties to Native Americans. It will not use any imagery with uh, Native Americans. It will not have any association uh, with any uh, Native Americans, including, by the way, uh, using the team Warriors or the, the name Warriors. So you won't have the Washington Warriors. I know you've got the Golden State Warriors, and nobody's really come for them yet. But apparently Washington Warriors would still be so politically incorrect that it would not be possible. Uh, Wright wrote in a briefing on the team's website, quote, one might look at this name, Washington Warriors, as a natural and even harmless transition, considering it does not necessarily... Harmless transition. I mean, again, we start talking about harm in nicknames. I, I, I think you're losing a lot of Americans to begin with. But he says, uh, one could look at the name Washington Warriors as a natural and even harmless transition, considering it does not necessarily or specifically carry a negative connotation. But as we learn through our research and engagement with various groups, 
Context matters. And that makes it a slippery slope. What is that? What is that even? Basically, what he's saying is we have to try to be so politically correct with our team name as to avoid any possible controversy whatsoever. He says, uh, through discussion with Native American leaders and individuals across the country, the team decided it would be in its best interest to make a clean break from the use of Native American imagery. He says, we recognize that everyone's in favor of this change. Even the Native American community offers a range of opinions about both our past and path forward. But in these moments, it's important to prioritize the views of those who have been hurt by our historical use of Native American language, iconography, and imagery. So in other words, if you're a Native American and you like the Washington Redskins, and there are plenty of Native Americans who do, by the way, the team would like you to know that your opinion matters less than a Native American who's been upset about the nickname. Now, why? If you have two Native Americans, Native American A and Native American B, both, you know, tribal members, both with their own experiences, but differing opinions of the name Washington Redskins, why should one opinion matter more? And this, I think, tells you everything you need to know about the dangers of cancel culture, because the Washington football team is now acknowledging that people who complain are prioritized over people who don't have a problem. Well, what does that lead to? Yeah, it leads to more people complaining. Why not? If you want to get your way, apparently you have to complain now. Uh, Wright said, we will choose an identity that unequivocally departs from any use or approximate linkage to Native American imagery. Uh, Wright says that the team is going to keep its burgundy and gold colors. The team has been working with a creative agency called Code in Theory to pour over 40,000 fan submissions. They've been holding focus groups, sending out fan surveys, talking with local and national leaders to narrow the list. I, I mean, look, if you're, if you're trying to be as woke as possible with your name to avoid any sort of controversy whatsoever you're going to have to get pretty creative. I, I would suggest maybe the, um, the Washington human beings, although even then that might, you might be accused of speciesism by, by not recognizing the important role that animals play on our planet. Um, you could go with, I would go with something like, how about just, uh, how about like, Hmm. How about the Washington monuments? Well, no, because there are people who want to take down the Washington monuments, including the Washington monument. So uh, you, you can't do that. How about just the, uh, the Washington collection of people who play football? doesn't quite roll off the tongue, but it's accurate. And I can't imagine, if, again, it's gender neutral, right? It's the Washington people who get together to play football. So wordy, but it would work. All right, the music means it is time for us to scoot. Have yourself a great rest of your Monday. We'll be back tomorrow, noon Eastern time, for more Tony Cast today. Until then, I'm Cam Edwards. Check us out at BarryAndArms.com as well for the latest Second Amendment news and information.